This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 430th episode, we have a bunch of news. It's all Sabrina this week. Oh yeah, and it's all about eggs. <laughs> Dinosaur eggs. Mm-hmm. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Lophostrophius. That's a funny one to say. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing a Dinosaur Connection Challenge. We also have a fun fact, which is about a potential dinosaur facial feature, which we've never talked about before. Interesting. I'm intrigued. I came up with it while going through the Dinosaur Connection Challenge and realized that I don't think it's ever been discussed on this podcast. Eyebrows? No. You're in the right ballpark, though. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'll guess more later. Yeah. But before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping to keep the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Sauropod Susan, Vincentrosaurus, TRX Dinosaurs, The Gray Allosaurus, Alex, Diplodocate, Gabrielle, Planner Sorolophus, Robert, and T-Bear. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a dino-it-all with us. We really appreciate you. Moving on to the egg stories, I'll start with, there were a whole bunch of titanosaur eggs found in India. This story has also been making its rounds on the interwebs. <laughs> it's specifically 92 clutches oh. were found, yeah, in the Lameda Formation. This is in central India, and that comes to 256 eggs. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like I hit eggs differently than I normally do. <laughs> <laughs> the, I'm surprised it's a power of two. It's exactly 256, which is like two to the fifth or eighth or something power. Yeah. Exactly. But if it's 92 clutches, what does that work out to? About three eggs a clutch? Well, it turns out that there's between one and I think it was 20 eggs. Okay. So there were probably, if there are some that are 20, there are lots that are just one. Yeah, and there were probably more eggs in this area, but they got eroded because there's signs of weathering in the area. Mm. So the field work for these eggs was done between 2017 and 2020, specifically in the paper they named December 2017, January 2018, and March 2020. And this was published in PLOS One, so it's open access, by Harsha, Diman, and others. They assigned eggs to six oo species, 
Yep, that's how you define an egg. You give it an ooh species mm-hmm. because we can't tell for sure which dinosaur it came from. So you can't just say like, oh, that's a oviraptor egg. Unless you find the embryo inside and you can tell from the embryo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think even then the egg itself gets an ooh species and then the thing inside it gets the dinosaur species name. Hmm. I'm not an egg expert. <laughs> <laughs> but they assign these ooh species based on... There's like pore structures, laying patterns, egg diameters. And having this many species of eggs may mean that there was a lot of diversity in the types of titanosaurs in the area at the time. Because these are they do know it's titanosaur eggs. Yeah. And usually an ooh species is going to, if there are six ooh species, that means there's probably at least six different species of dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes multiple dinosaurs that are closely related might lay the same ooh species of egg. Yep. But they're probably not going to lay multiple ooh species from a single species. Yes. And they know that it's titanosaur eggs based on the shape of the eggs, the clutch patterns, and they also look similar to other titanosaur clutches that have been found in the area. So that helps. Big and very spherical is what I think of for titanosaur eggs. There's a lot of dinosaurs that have been found in this formation, in the Lameda formation. The first ones were found back in 1928. And some of the dinosaurs include theropods like Indosuchus and Indosaurus and sauropods like Janosaurus. And then there's egg clutches, eggs, and eggshell fragments from nine ooh species of titanosaurs found in the area. And then there's other animals too, like fish and turtles and snakes. That is a lot. That's a lot of animals and a lot of eggs. Yes. These titanosaurs, they laid eggs in marsh flatlands and then they buried them in shallow pits. There's a few egg clutches that were laid close to lakes and ponds and then those might have gotten submerged and didn't hatch. But most of them were laid further away and they did hatch. Yeah, it seems risky laying them in an area with a lot of moisture like that Mm -hmm. because we know if an egg gets submerged underwater, it's not like, was that in Land Before Time where the egg is like floating down the river? Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> it probably sink and then the animal inside drowns. It worked out for Littlefoot. <laughs> Especially if it's buried. I guess Littlefoot wasn't buried. Yeah. So they had them that going for him. But if it's buried in like some muck and then the water level rises, it's yeah. not good for the babies. Well, titanosaurs may have been like crocodiles and preferred nesting near water because the soft sediments near the rivers and lakes, they could have used them to partially bury the eggs. Okay. It's easier digging. Mm-hmm. And in the sites in this study, the soft sediments may have been covered by Deccan lava flows, which is what preserved them. Oh, no. Yeah, it's worse than getting covered in water, getting covered in lava. <laughs> now, of the 92 clutches, only 25 of them showed unhatched eggs. So that's pretty good. And because there were so many eggs that were well-preserved, they were probably buried quickly. And it also might mean that this nesting area was probably safe from predators. Mm, okay. You're laying them in a dangerous area so the predators don't dare go after them. <laughs> <laughs> safe in some ways, dangerous in others, yeah. Or maybe they're just safe in, in number because there are so many clutches that <laughs> That's it's... That's true. These eggs, like I mentioned, in each nest, it varied between one and 20 eggs that they found. And the eggs ranged between six to 6.7 inches or 15 to 17 centimeters in diameter. Well, that's a narrow range. Less than an inch from the smallest to the largest out of over 200. Yeah. Not a lot of variability. Yeah, very consistent in these titanosaur eggs. They found three clutch types. There's circular, 
where the eggs are randomly distributed in a pit and kind of in a circle, and there's four or more eggs that are closely spaced together. These eggs are laid in a pit-like structure with sediments in between them. There's the combination type. You've got tightly grouped eggs with sediments in between, so they're possibly buried together in a shallow pit so their surfaces touch each other. And then there's linear, where the eggs lie in a line, which is more common in theropod nests, but it has been found in sauropod clutches. Oh, I didn't realize sauropods did that. Yeah. I always just imagined them digging a pit with their back feet, haphazardly laying a few eggs, kicking some dirt over the top maybe, <laughs> and walking away. Oh, there was a method to their madness. <laughs> some of them, at least. Yeah. <laughs> so because there are multiple ooze species, the different eggs, the different types of sauropods may have shared the same nesting grounds. And maybe they laid eggs together in colonies because the nests are closely spaced together and there's evidence of either hatching or some damage to the eggs because, you know, they're so close together. Things happened. Mm. But because the nests were close to each other, that could mean that the titanosaurs didn't do much parental care because if they did, they might have accidentally trampled these nests. Oh, I see. Yeah. When you're huge and heavy and you bury a bunch of shallow nests. Mm-hmm. It's risky if you're going to be walking around them all the time. Yes. And all your neighbors are walking around all the time. Yeah. And maybe you don't lay enough eggs between all of you. <laughs> yeah. It's a good strategy if you're not going to stick around, though, because then it's like turtles where they all hatch at once, hopefully, and then there's too much chaos for the predators to eat all of them. Mm-hmm. Now, no adult, juvenile, or embryo sauropods were really found in this area, and that could mean that soon after hatching, the dinosaurs left. Or it could mean we just haven't found those fossils yet, or maybe those fossils eroded. Yeah, that's true. There are different types of sediments that preserve eggs versus preserving bones in some cases. So it can be tricky to find them together. Yeah. Uh, some of the eggs have resorption craters. And eggshells with a lack of resorption craters may mean that the eggs were infertile or the embryo died before the eggs ossified. And that could be because of environmental or biological reasons. So, for example, the eggs were buried too deep and the embryo asphyxiated or there were flash floods that suffocated the embryo. Yep. Yeah, it's risky burying eggs. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's why if you really want to make sure, ensure the survival of your eggs, you have the open nest and you sit on them and you carefully watch them and adjust them slowly over time to make sure everything's perfect. But like you say, how do you do that as a titanosaur it's when you're hard. so massive? And so dumb. <laughs> what? <laughs> Harden? <laughs> and kylosaurs aren't that smart either. <laughs> anyway, some of the eggs do show signs of hatching because they're missing the upper surface where the hatchling may have come out. Some eggshell fragments were found in a position that suggests they slid inside the bottom of an egg rather than fell, and that could be from gases in the egg. It expanded after the embryo decayed and created openings in the egg, or maybe the hatchling used an egg tooth. That's interesting. So there were broken egg pieces inside of a more intact egg? Yeah. Huh. It's like, what happened there? Why is that at the bottom of the egg? <laughs> that's not what you expect, that's for sure. There were some pathological eggs found, including an ovum in ovo, an egg in egg. And that forms when a completely formed egg gets pushed back up the oviduct via muscle contractions and then gets embedded in another unformed egg. This happens when the parent is stressed, which could be due to a lack of nesting sites, or maybe there's floods or droughts, or there's a high population or sickness or diet. 
just to name a few examples. So you end up with an egg which is twice as thick as it should be because it went through the egg forming process twice. Yeah. An egg in egg. <laughs> <laughs> now, finding an ovum and ovo egg may mean that titanosaurs were sequential egg layers. They release the eggs one by one. And that's similar to birds and different from turtles and crocodiles. However, the eggs being randomly spaced in the nest shows a nesting pattern more similar to crocodiles. So we often talk about dinosaurs. Obviously, they evolved into birds, but their next closest relatives are crocodiles. Yep, and there's a lot of things that they do or we'd expect them to do that don't really make sense with birds because, for example, birds don't have teeth mm -hmm. and birds tend to fly and make, you know, different types of nests than crocodiles do and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, crocodiles are often the next best thing we can compare them to. That's cool though. That is a lot of dinosaur eggs. Oh yeah. Big nesting site. So in other egg news, there's a new small theropod in town. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to say there's a new theropod in town? It's a new small theropod in town? Yes, because they're thinking this theropod, based on the size of the egg, weighed between 26 to 37 pounds, or 12 to 17 kilograms. That's pretty small. Mm -hmm. So it's a new type of troodontid egg found in Gifu Prefecture, Japan, in the Okurodani Formation, and this was published in Historical Biology by Rina Uematsu and others. It could be that it's also a closely related non-avian manoraptorin, or maybe it is troodontid. They found seven eggshell fragments and six eggshell impressions, and the new type species, we've got another oo species here, is Ramoprisma tulithis okurai. Whoa, Ramoprisma tulithis? Yes. It's named from five eggshell fragments and four impressions. So they estimated the size of this troodontid slash other theropod from the size of the egg? Yes, the eggs they estimated were about three and a half ounces or 99 grams, and that based on that, and they only found fragments, so they pieced it together. And then based on that, they said this is probably laid by some small theropods that weighed... 26 to 37 pounds or 12 to 17 oh, kilograms. That's interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. I was imagining you look at a little tiny egg and then you try to figure out how big it would grow from mm. that egg, but they do it the other way. How big could it lay? Yeah. How big is the likely mother given the size of the egg? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> Just to round out because they found seven eggshell fragments and six impressions, two of the other eggshell fragments are turtle eggshells and two eggshell impressions are from an indeterminate group, unknown. Turtles are popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. They're with the titanosaur eggs, too. So these fossils were collected between 1988 and 2009. They're the oldest eggshell fossils found in Japan so far, from 129 to 133 million years ago. Oh, still Cretaceous, though. Mm -hmm. The genus name, the Ramo part, means branch, and it refers to the low ridges on the eggshell. And the species name is in honor of Masatoshi Okra, quote, who pioneered the discovery of fossil eggshells and other vertebrate remains in Shokawa, end quote. So again, they think it's a troodontid egg. That's based on the microstructure of the shell. No troodontid or small manoraptorin theropod fossils have been found yet in the area. So maybe one day they'll find it and it could be a new type of dinosaur. 
Well, then that's especially important because it tells you the types of dinosaurs that were there because it might be like the first evidence mm -hmm. of there being a troodontid from that area. Exactly. Yeah, you can learn a lot from eggs. And now we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. But when we get back, I'm going to do our dinosaur connection challenge, which is about Pokemon. I'll give a hint. You got to catch them all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our Dinosaur Connection Challenge, which is Pokemon. And thank you to Miriam for suggesting that one. I will say I've only played red, blue, and yellow on Game Boy Color. I think later on I got the fire red one, which was like red plus a few more new dinosaurs. Not dinosaurs, Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> they do seem very dinosaur-like. Yeah. At least some of them. Yeah, that, that's obviously like the easiest connection to make is just that Pokemon, a lot of them are dinosaurish. But you dug deeper. I did. And I also will say I was always a Squirtle guy because I really liked Blastoise, which is a big turtle with weaponry on it. Very Ankylosaurus-like. I was going to say, you're bringing up the turtles again. <laughs> this one is literally a turtle. <laughs> Charizard is also cool because it's a dragon. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that should be my favorite since dinosaurs and dragons go together so right. well. But you'd prefer the turtle. I like the slow lumbering like powerful but armored animals, yeah. which is why I go with the, the Blastoise. So in the original games, there are three fossil Pokemon out of the 151 original Pokes. <laughs> <laughs> I like to call them Pokes. 
literally they are fossils that you turn into Pokemon in the game. So they were Jurassic Parking. Very Jurassic Park style. They find a rock and then they do science and then bam, living creature pops out. <laughs> it's even more crazy than Jurassic Park because it's not like they have an egg and they combine DNA and do anything like that. It's like you put it in a mystery machine and an animal pops out of the other side, not in an egg or anything. It's just mm -hmm. ready to go. So the first one is the Helix Fossil, which turns into Ammonite, which is a cute little Ammonite. Ammonite, Ammonite, get it? Mm. I really like that one. There's also the Dome Fossil, which turns into Kabuto, which is a really freaky horseshoe crab with glowing red eyes. I really like horseshoe crabs ever since I learned about or I've seen some fossilized ones. They're so freaky. They're like the freakiest and they have blue blood and they're just terrifying. I don't like huge invertebrates. They are too creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a result, I almost always picked Ammonite because you had to pick between those two fossils. You like ran into a guy in a cave and he's like, which one do you want? So anyway, <laughs> there's also the old amber is a thing you can get in the original Pokemon. Oh. And by the way, it's called old amber. I don't know why, because all amber is old. There's no such thing as new amber. But mm. anyway. Maybe in Pokemon world, there's going to be new amber. <laughs> Maybe. The old amber in Pokemon turns into Aerodactyl, which obviously Aerodactyl sounds like Pterodactyl. Mm -hmm. And it is a pterosaur, but not a dinosaur, which means there are no dinosaurs in the first game. Oh. You've got the pterosaur. There's also a plesiosaur, which is called Lapras. I never mm. really put together that it was a plesiosaur because it's got a big shell thing on its back. But it's basically a plesiosaur. It's got the big flippers that are mm. sort of pointy at the ends. That's cool. And there's a bunch of cool dragons, like the adorable Dratini and the epic-looking Gyarados. But obviously nothing too based on dinosaurs. Maybe Dragonite, the one that Dratini evolves into, because that's like a big European-style one that has vaguely dinosaur feet, mm. I would say. It's probably the closest you get in the first 150, 151 pokes. There is, however, a Pokemon Fossil Museum exhibit. Yeah, we've talked about that. We have. And it's been touring around Japan since mid-2021. It is still going on display. It's still only in Japan. It's only ever been in Japan. Oh, I hope it comes here. That would be really cool. I don't know how likely it is because it's very much in Japan. You might be able to see... Actually, I think you could see a virtual version. Yeah, I saw like a couple little videos and a few digital things. Mm-hmm. I think all of the exhibits are in Japanese, so mm. it's probably easier to keep it in country rather than having to translate everything. Sure. Plus, there are things with the dinosaur names. So all of the Pokemon have a Japanese name, and then they have an English name, and they're sort of based on the same vague thing. But sometimes, like one of them is basically, it starts with the beginning of Triceratops, mm. but the Japanese word for Triceratops is the beginning of the Japanese Pokemon. Oh. But in English, they used a totally different word for it that sounds nothing like Triceratops in English. Hmm. So it, it might not always work super well in terms of translating it. Mm -hmm. But they do in this exhibit show lots of fossil Pokemon next to real fossils, including dinosaurs, which inspired the Pokemon. And there are a lot of dinosaurs involved in the later Pokemon in mm -hmm. later series. So the most obvious one, I would say, is Tyrantrum. <laughs> <laughs> T-Rex? Yeah, it's a combination of Tyrannosaurus and Tantrum. That's uh, how you get Tyrantrum. It's basically just a T-Rex. Does it throw tantrums? Probably. <laughs> 
Although it does have a couple of interesting details that are not like T-Rex. So it has a couple of spikes at the end of its tail. Oh, that's different. Yeah. It also has gold horns above its eyes that kind of look like a crown. Like it's got like four or six of them sticking up. Goes with a tyrant king. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good call. It also has matching gold teeth in the top of its mouth, Ooh. which is a weird look. I wonder how well those teeth work. <laughs> yeah. They're sort of like built into the the skull. Hmm. A lot of that happens with a lot of the Pokemon where like they have teeth that are sort of like bird teeth where it's like part of the beak. It's oh. not a separate structure. So it's not shedding teeth. Presumably not, but I think it's just sort of an anime style that yeah. they picked. It also has a collar slash cape and a beard, both presumably made out of white feathers. Oh, they gave it feathers. They did. And it makes you wonder if any dinosaurs had chin feathers. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I would say probably not if it's something eating large prey, because everything that gets their face up against rotting meat or just meat in general mm -hmm. doesn't usually have a lot of Like feathers. vultures. Exactly. They don't even have it on their head or their neck, really, because mm -hmm. they get their whole... <laughs> <laughs> stick their whole head in the carcass. Whatever yeah. opening they could find. Yeah, they go face first in and... If you get meat on it, even if it's fresh when you eat it, it's going to rot if it gets stuck in the feathers. So yep. presumably T-Rex did not have big feathers on its chin, but it's possible that maybe like an herbivore or an insectivore or something that was just snatching up smaller prey, mm -hmm. maybe they might have had a beard of feathers. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, it kind of reminds me of a lion's mane. I think that might be partly what they were going for with it too. So it's possible. If it's far, you know, with a lion, it's far enough away from their mouth that the mane doesn't get all nasty with viscera. Hmm. There's also Tyranitar, which isn't included in the exhibit, but I think it's pretty T-Rex-like, although it might be a little more Godzilla kaiju style mm. because it's very much in that purely upright, like you could put a person standing in that position and would look totally normal. Are there spikes going down its back? There are. I think so. I always see it from the front, but mm. I think there are. I really enjoyed that one in Pokemon Go because it was a really good Pokemon Go character. And one of the descriptions of it says, quote, it knocks down mountains and buries rivers. Maps must be redrawn afterwards, end quote. Wow. And that reminded me of sauropods. Yeah, because sauropods <laughs> shaped their landscapes. Yeah, because they were so heavy that walking, yeah, mm -hmm. they could have. If they walk in the same paths. Not only sort of making a path the way that humans and bears and everything do walk in in the forest, but it might have literally carved out like sediment, mm -hmm. like smashed down dirt in a way. <laughs> so I thought that was a good connection. There's also some other similar kaiju style pokes like Baxcalibur is one of them. Mm -hmm. But there's, yeah, there's a whole bunch of these kaiju looking things. There's also Shieldon which I would never have made the connection that it was supposed to be like a dinosaur if it wasn't for the Pokemon fossil exhibit because they call it a little quote-unquote shield Pokemon. What is that? Well, it's like they every Pokemon has a category and they're usually really specific. Mm -hmm. So this is a shield Pokemon. Hmm. And so I guess, you know, Ceratopsians, some of them are named shield in various ways. But it basically looks like a huge gray shield for a head. Hmm. And then it sort of has an armored unibrow and mustache, which makes it look like it's wearing a face mask. Is it supposed to be like a ceratopsian? Yes. Okay. That's what I was thinking of with the shield head. Exactly. That's my first thought. So you might have noticed it better than I did. It's apparently based on protoceratops. Oh, okay. Which is surprising. Yeah. It doesn't have any horns on its face, which might be why. Mm. And they say, quote, it habitually polishes its face by rubbing it against tree trunks. 
which that's, is that sounds unpleasant insane and again why i wouldn't think dinosaur because they make it sound like its face shield is made out of metal right and not something that a dinosaur would be made out of it is interesting though because we do know things like deer with their antlers they like scrape them on trees yeah it's not to polish them but maybe yeah. a ceratopsian might have done something similar with their horns or their frill sun bears scratch themselves on trees <laughs> yeah that's really enjoyable <laughs> Shieldon evolves into an even crazier Pokemon called Bastiodon. What's that one? It's basically a Triceratops with some extremely weird changes. So it evolves to have horns. It does, yes. And that sort of makes sense in that in Pokemon, it's like everything evolves. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually grow up as the same thing. It, so it, it kind of works when you're talking about dinosaurs because yeah. they can be separate species since it's evolving. Although we don't think that Ceratopsians evolved in like a protoceratops evolved into Triceratops. For one thing, they were around in different places and also around the same time. So mm -hmm. there isn't really a, a chronology that makes sense for that. But the concept that you evolve and then you look very different. Yes. There might have been something protoceratops-like that evolved into Triceratops. So that's reasonable. But with Triceratops, if, you, if you're trying to imagine Bastiodon, take a Triceratops, add a huge nose down the middle of its frill. Like okay. an Easter Island, you know, like rock nose oh. in the middle of its frill. Then make the brow horns stick out of the nose like it's a pierced nose <laughs> rather than <laughs> like regular Triceratops horns. Mm -hmm. Then give it four horns on its chin that look like big weird tusks pointed up at a way larger mouth than it actually had. Does it scoop food up like that? I have no idea. It's, <laughs> it's just supposed to be all armor, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then draw little windows on its face and make the top of the frill look like roof triangles. <laughs> so the bastio part of its name is supposed to be like a bastion in a fort. Okay, so it's like a fortress. Yes, exactly. I think they might have even called it like a fortress Pokemon. Mm. <laughs> but it's like it makes sense. You evolve from a shield to a fortress. Yes. But the, the fact that they like drew a fort on its face. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> In the less crazy camp, there's Cranidos and also Rampardos, which are pachycephalosaurs. And it has basically what you'd expect. It's got a dome head. It's got little spikes on the back of its skull like a pachycephalosaur. Although unlike pachycephalosaurus, the bigger one has bigger spikes on its skull, whereas we think that as Pachycephalosaurus got older, its spikes actually shrunk down into little bumps, and then its bump grew bigger. Hmm. And they do call it a headbutt Pokemon as the category, <laughs> so that fits too. It does. There's also Arken slash Archaeops. Like Archaeopteryx? Yes. Its type is first bird Pokemon, mm. <laughs> which is a pretty good giveaway since Archaeopteryx means early feather, I believe. I think it's ancient feather. Or maybe ancient wing. But yeah, often cited as the first bird, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they confirmed it's inspired by Archaeopteryx in the traveling exhibit. But it follows the usual format of starting out cute and then evolving into something crazy looking because <laughs> they have to have two different versions of it. Right. Well, many of them have two versions. Some of them only have one version. And the second version where it evolves into something else should be fiercer, right? Yes, exactly. Neither of them look that fierce, though, <laughs> in this case. Interestingly, they say, quote, it takes off into the sky by running at a speed of 25 miles an hour. Hmm. 
Kind of like an airplane. Yes. It also means that creators of Pokemon are fans of the ground-up evolution of flight hypothesis and not the trees-down hypothesis. Oh, yeah, because they don't take off from trees or something tall. Rather than gliding down and flapping, this one's running and then (laughs) flapping and taking off. That's also, I think, like albatross might take off like that, too. Mm. There's some birds that sort of get a running start and flap to take off. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure I've seen seagulls do it on the ground, like picking up a piece of bread or something, start running and then flapping to yeah. get up off the ground. There's also Draco Zolt, which is maybe the most insane one. <laughs> Why? So Draco and Zolt is like a combination of a dragon and some kind of electricity mm-hmm. thing. And the back half of it looks like a stegosaur without the thagomizer of spikes at the end of the tail. Oh. Okay. And the front half looks like a shrink-wrapped theropod. Oh, so it sounds kind of like those custom dinosaurs you can build in Lego Jurassic World. Yes, exactly. Except this one, they don't blend together at all. So it almost makes it look like the front theropod thing is like wearing a giant costume of stegosaur <laughs> legs because it's like skinny right up until it gets to this way bigger body. And then it's like a cross section of it. It's very weird. Super weird choice combining a a theropod and a stegosaur. I don't know what that's about. It's about combining the fiercest qualities, maybe, of the two animals. I think, yeah, likely. Although the description of it was something like the back half of it is really strong, Mm. even though the front half is so weak. But it's like (laughs) theropods versus stegosaurs. I don't know. It seems like theropods can pull their own, too. Depends on the theropod. I think the best dinosaurs in the game, though, are sauropods. Nice. Don't hear that too often from you. (laughs) There aren't any ankylosaurs, unfortunately. Mm. Oh, yeah. There's just the turtley thing. Yeah. There's chikorita slash bayleaf slash meganium or meganium. Oh, so it can evolve twice. Yes. So this is one of the starter Pokemon in one of the later games, and it is a leaf Pokemon. That's how they describe it. Which I think of sauropods, the dinosaurs had a type. They would be leaf type <laughs> dinosaurs. I like that. <laughs> so this one is a sauropod crossed with plants. Interesting. So the little one has a single cute little leaf on its head, like Littlefoot with the tree star. Oh. Except it's not star tree star shaped. It's mm-hmm. a different shaped leaf, but it's very cute. The biggest one has a huge flower at the base of its neck, like mm. growing out of its neck. And it says, quote, the fragrance emanating from its flower petals can soothe any angry, hostile emotions. Nice trick. It's an interesting strategy as a fighting Pokemon, also known as Pocket Monster. Takes the fight out of you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So nice and docile creature. I like it. There's also Amora slash Aurorus. Amora has big eyelash looking sails. On the top of its head. So it's kind of like an Amargosaurus? Not really. These are on top of its head, okay. not on its neck. Mm. So they're like eyelashes. And then Aurorus has a pair of long sails that look like butterfly wings coming out of its neck. <laughs> and that one apparently is loosely based on Amargosaurus with its big neck spines slash sails. Cool. And they describe it as, quote, it's said that when this Pokemon howls, Auroras appear in the night sky. Pretty. That's why it's named Aurorus. And it's got just these huge wings on its neck. But I guess they're sails, so it's not a flying Pokemon. Hmm. However, there is a flying sauropod, 
And that is my favorite of all of them. It's named Tropius. It's half sauropod and half banana tree. And all flying. (laughs) The reason that it's half banana tree is because, quote, it continually ate only its favorite fruit. The fruit started growing around its neck. (laughs) That's sauropod-like in that it's constantly eating. Yes. It also has banana-colored claws. (laughs) And yeah, the fruit growing from its neck is clearly bananas. It also has huge banana tree leaves that make it look like a sauropod crossed with an enormous dragonfly. So it's got like four Mm -hmm. banana leaves. And yeah, it can fly with these wings apparently in Pokemon land. Awesome. Yeah. So that banana tree sauropod, I think, is my favorite of the dinosaurs. I do like the sound of it. <laughs> it's it's one of the ones I'm sure it's not a very useful Pokemon in the game because it's one of those that doesn't evolve at all and it doesn't sound particularly menacing in the description of it. It's kind of goofy. So it's probably not the most useful one to have on your team, mm. but I still love it. Sounds like it'd be a good friend. <laughs> yeah. That one and the one with the flower on its neck that mm-hmm. befriends everything. All right, now we're going to pause for one last sponsor break. And then when we get back, we'll get into our dinosaur of the day, Lophistrophius. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Lophostrophius, which was a request from PaleoMike716 via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was a coelophysoid theropod that lived between the late Triassic and early Jurassic around 205 to 196 million years ago in what is now Normandy, France, in the Moon Arrow Formation. That's very old. Yeah. It looked kind of like Dilophosaurus, but smaller. Hmm. You know, it walked on two legs, it had long arms, a long tail, and a couple of crests on the top of its head. That is very Dilophosaurus-like. Yeah, but it was small to medium in size. It's estimated it could grow up to 9.8 feet or 3 meters long and weigh up to 220 pounds or 100 kilograms. Okay, so that's maybe half the length and a third or less of the weight Mm. than a Dilophosaurus. There are some scientists, though, such as Molina Perez and Lara Mendy, who've estimated it to be up to 17 feet or 5.2 meters long and weighing 300 pounds or 136 kilograms. So, a bit bigger. It's really interesting that it might have survived the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. Yeah, yeah, because you have it on both sides there, since that's right at the 200 million year mark mm-hmm. ago, and it, it might be on both sides. That's pretty cool. Not a lot of dinosaurs or animals in general pulled that off. (laughs) That's true. The type species is Lophostrophius arlensis, and the genus name means crest vertebrae. That name refers to the low crests on the top and bottom, or the dorsal and ventral neck vertebrae. 
The species name refers to the Aero Quarry where the fossils were found. Originally, Lophostrophius was thought to be Halticosaurus, and then later it was thought to be Lilian Sternus before it became known as Lophostrophius. Halticosaurus is a dubious theropod that lived in the Triassic, and that one was named in 1908. And Lillian Sturtis was a basal neotheropod that lived in the Triassic in what is now Germany, and that one was named in 1984. The fossils of this specimen of Lophostrophius was first described in 1966 by Claude Larseneur and Albert Felix de la Parat, and they described it as Halticosaurus. They described a partial skeleton that was found in 1959. It included a tooth, a number of vertebrae, including five neck vertebrae, and parts of the pelvis. A quote from the 1966 paper that described the skeleton said, quote, One tooth, 35 vertebrae, several bone fragments, and coprolites were discovered in the blackish and sandy clayey beds of the arrow quarry, end quote. One tooth and 35 vertebrae. Yes. I feel like you're more likely to find 35 teeth in one vertebra than <laughs> <for> most dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, probably. The tooth that was found was two centimeters and was slightly recurved and flattened and it had serrated edges. And the author said, quote, this trenchant tooth at the same time as a knife, saber, and saw, according to Buckland's remark, end quote. So they recognized that they couldn't classify a dinosaur based on just one tooth, but they said that the tooth pointed them to the dinosaur being a theropod, and then the vertebrae made it seem like it was Halticosaurus. Okay. I want, you got to wonder when you find a single tooth next to some vertebrae, if that tooth does in fact come from the vertebrae. Or if it was shed and something moved on. Because they lost so many teeth, theropods. Mm. It's interesting. Maybe it was the way they were found in the quarry together. Yeah. Now, seven of the vertebrae from the neck, which are, quote, remarkable for their elongation, end quote. And the author said, quote, is not so frequent in dinosaurs, end <laughs> Not <quote>. so frequent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of times I end up quoting things because I like the way the authors phrased it. Mm -hmm. They also found three coprolites with fish teeth and scales, which may have belonged to the Halticosaurus, now known as Lophostrophius. So in other words, they're fossilized dung. Mm -hmm. So it means it would have been eating fish because you said fish teeth, and I assume that's fish scales, they're thinking. I think so. And in the quarry where the fossils were found, the author said, quote, mollusk shells form true marbles in places. Ooh, mollusk marbles. But that just points to the marine life. Mm -hmm. In 1993, Guy Cooney and Peter Galton reclassified the specimen as Lillian sternus arlensis. But later, more differences were found, such as having an extra pair of cavities in the neck vertebrae. So splitting the dinosaur to a new genus as Lophostrophius made sense. So first it got assigned to one that became dubious. Mm -hmm. And then so they had to give it a new classification. So they stuck it in with another existing dinosaur, Leon Sternus. And then later on, they decided, wait, no, it's different enough. Yeah. That it deserves its own genus. So then it got pulled back out again or pulled out for the first time, I suppose. I think so. I didn't look too much into Halticosaurus in terms of the timing of when it became dubious. Gotcha. In 2000, Oliver Raoult and Axel Hungerbuehler published a review of European Triassic theropods and suggested that Lillian Sternus arolensis, 
quote, might represent a distinct genus, but more material is needed to confirm this, end quote. They found major differences in the neck vertebrae, such as the extra cavities, but said that whether or not that's enough to merit a new genus depended on finding more fossils for comparison. Hmm. So another one of those hashtag need more fossils. Yes. I was hoping you were going to say, and then they found a skull or something, <laughs> you know, like tying that tooth to a head or is somehow more than just the vertebrae. That does happen sometimes, but not in this case, at least not yet. In 2004, Matthew Carano and S.D. Sampson published a review of coelophysoids from the Lower Jurassic of Europe and found that Lillian sternus slash Lophostrophius was a coelophysoid. Then Lophostrophius finally was officially named in 2007 by Martin Escura and Guy Cooney. They found that Lillian sternus erlensis had enough unique features to be renamed Lophostrophius, including, quote, constant length of caudal vertebrae along the tail, end quote. And they found that features Lophostrophius had in common with Lillian sternus, Lillian sterni. It's <laughs> oh, a clever name. <laughs> yep. Were, quote, more widely distributed among coelophysoids and basal dinosaurs than it was thought, end quote, meaning those features weren't enough to keep them grouped together. They also found Lophostrophius to be more closely related to Coelophysidae, then Lillian sternus, Lillian sterni. Okay. That's another good reason to pull it out. Yep. Although I guess someone could lump it in with a different Coelophysid. <laughs> I wonder where that idea of them having the two crests on the top of the head came from. Maybe just its similarities with the Lophosaurus. The crest refers to the cranial cervical vertebrae. Oh, okay. So it's not on the top of its head. No, but if you look up paleo art, that is how it's often depicted. Okay. You know, between the snout and the eyes. Yeah, that's, that's like Dilophosaurus, right? Mm-hmm. But we'll have to eventually find the skull to be sure about that. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know why it's depicted that way. There's not too many other animals that were found in the quarry where these fossils were found. But they have found fish, like we mentioned, and also plants. And our fun fact of the day is very simple. Mm -hmm. Although I'm going to expand on it a lot because I always do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What the, is it? The fact itself is that some dinosaurs may have had whiskers. Oh, that is a body part we haven't talked about. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about whiskers on dinosaurs when before. When I think of whiskers, I think of cats. Yeah, me too. And they might have even been very similar to the whiskers that cats had. What? So if you look at a picture of a bird, there's a decent chance, not all birds have this, but many do, they have these bristles sticking out of the corners of their mouths. And that's because some birds have structures called rictal bristles. Hmm. The rictus is the name for the quote unquote cheek that dinosaurs, including birds, have. Mm -hmm. If you look at a dinosaur picture of, say, like a theropod, like a T-Rex roaring, and there's that pink-colored tissue that sort of has a curve to it in the corner of the mouth, yeah, that's the rictus. Oh. <laughs> but sometimes the rictus is a weird, slightly looser term where they say it's like the gape of the bird's yeah. mouth, and then that can mean like basically sort of the whole perimeter next to where the mouth is. I'm glad I know that term now. The rictus. Because I notice it all the time. Yes. That could be the fun fact in and of itself mm -hmm. that that spot is called the rictus. <laughs> the quote unquote cheek as it's usually called. 
Some birds have bristly feathers coming out of that spot, and birds can also have modified feathers that look like whiskers sticking out of other parts of their head too, so it's not just rictal bristles, they can have bristles elsewhere too. But those bristles can be really useful. A hypothesis for a long time was that those bristles were used like an extension of the cheek, helping to catch insects midair. Hmm. So if you think about, you've got your mouth wide open, and then you've got these bristles sticking out of the sides, Mm -hmm. sort of like a funnel, funneling in the insects into your mouth as your mouth is wide open. That's interesting. It's a very different reason than why cats have whiskers, which is to help them sense things. Yes, But you may have noticed I said the hypothesis for a long time was. Oh, okay. Does that mean we think it was more like cats now? I'll get to it. Okay, I'm I'm jumping ahead. (laughs) Real quick, though, if you try to look up rictal bristles, you won't really find it in a dictionary. The term that both the OED and Merriam-Webster use is the word vibrissa. OED is Oxford English Dictionary? Yes. And the OED gives an ornithology definition of vibrissa it can be a lot of things. It can be like nose hairs. Our, our nose hairs are considered vibrissa. Cat whiskers are considered vibrissa. It's just this weird word. I don't know. It doesn't seem very anatomically useful if it includes both nose hairs and cat whiskers. But in any event, they give the definition for birds as, quote, bristle-like feathers growing around the gape of certain insectivorous birds that catch insects in flight, mm. end quote. Merriam-Webster gives a different use of the bristles, saying, quote, bristly feathers near the mouth of many and especially insectivorous birds that may help to prevent the escape of insects, end quote. So they're looking at them more as like the baleen of a whale, where it's (laughs) stopping the stuff from leaving, whereas the OED is saying it's helping to catch them. But way back in 1972, Roger Lederer wrote a paper questioning these assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I think they summarized it pretty well saying, quote, a cursory examination of a number of bird families indicates that there is little or no relation between the presence, dimensions, or number of facial bristles and a tendency towards aerial feeding or insectivorous habits, end quote. All right. So he put birds in a cage and used high-speed photographs This is back in the film days, so I actually saw a blog post by them recently Mm -hmm. talking about how they had tons and tons of rolls of film and it only lasts like nine seconds because they were taking crazy. I think it said it was almost 400 frames per second. Wow. What they would do is they put four species of flycatcher birds into a cage and then put in 30 flies. Okay, so they were taking... (laughs) rapid fire photographs of the birds eating the flies yes or nearly eating the flies but guess how many of them made it deep enough in the mouth that the rictal bristles helped catch the flies i'm thinking it's a low number based on what you've been saying Mm -hmm. single digits well i'm in a way because it was zero okay (laughs) (laughs) so all of the flies were caught at the tip of the bill very far from the bristles, and there were some that were missed, but they were also missed near the tip of the bill. So it's not like the rictal bristles were really useful at all in this effect. Mm -hmm. Additionally, the top of the bill has a little hook in it that points down. You see that in lots of birds. You can see it in pelicans, all sorts of birds. have. It's almost like a tooth at the end of the bill pointing down a little hook. Hmm. A lot of carnivorous birds have this too. And when they snap their bill closed these flycatchers, that little hook tends to stab into the fly to hold it in place. Oh. 
So it very much seems like everything about these birds, the goal is to catch the fly in the very tip of the bill, not farther back. There's no funneling strategy going. And they basically hold it there for a little bit too. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they need these bristles there to hold the fly in place either. As they put it, quote, it appears as if the use of rictal bristles as an aid to aerial prey capture by arthropod eating birds has been casually accepted without definitive evidence. The most logical explanation for the presence of rictal bristles is that they perform some sort of sensory function. Like cats. Yeah. <laughs> Further investigation is obviously warranted, end quote. So that was in 1972, mm -hmm. talking about how we need further investigation. Unfortunately, now here we are 51 years later, hmm. and the function of the bristles is still pretty much a mystery. <laughs> there have been some studies that have shown some uses of the bristles, though. So the whiskered auklet in the Aleutian Islands and Siberia has these really bright white whiskers against its black plumage, which is why it's called the whiskered auklet. Because you notice those whiskers? They really stand out. Yeah, it's really cool. The whiskers are around both the mouth and the eyes. And these birds eat plankton and similar aquatic creatures, so they're not using those whiskers in any way to help catch either. Like you know, they get wet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not. It's not a, they're not filter feeding with them or anything. Plus, a lot of them stick out of their forehead. Basically, mm -hmm. what researchers did is they took those whiskers and taped them back to their head, basically, so that they weren't out and being useful as whiskers. And then they put them in a maze in the dark. Ooh. And what they found is that the auklets with the whiskers taped bumped headfirst into walls twice as often than those that had the use of their whiskers. Which points to using it for sensory purposes. Like a cat, mm -hmm. like you were saying. And these auklets often go in and out of their nests at night. So presumably it's useful for them navigating in and out of their nests at night. Pretty simple answer. Mm -hmm. Kiwis also have very long rictal bristles, like maybe even longer than a cat. <laughs> so if you look at a picture of a kiwi bird, mm -hmm. a lot of them draw these crazy bristles sticking out of their face. They go out in every direction, up, down, <laughs> side to side. They're like all over the place. I didn't notice that when we saw kiwi birds in person, but I think it's because their legs were much longer than I was expecting. So I was focused on their legs. They're also running really fast and it was really dark in the room. Yeah. Because they did that thing at the zoo where they switch daytime and nighttime so you can see them active mm -hmm. in there where you know while the zoo's open in the daytime and the assumption with kiwi birds is that they use them for navigating in the dark too potentially maybe when they because they eat insects maybe they're useful for helping to feel insects moving but they have really long beaks that they sort of stab down into the dirt to mm -hmm. get at things so it's that might not be true i couldn't find any studies that actually tested this though there was also a study from 2020 by Delaney et al. looking at the bristles on night jars. Night jars are really interesting. I don't think we've talked about them before. I don't know if I've ever even heard of them before, but they're kind of a cross between a hawk and an owl. Hmm. They're really cool looking birds. There's also a subfamily of them called night hawks that tells you that how hawk-like they look. Mm -hmm. They're mostly active at twilight and many of them eat insects, especially moths and beetles that they catch midair. So again, it's another thing catching things midair mm -hmm. that has rictal bristles. This study looked at 12 species of night jars and their rictal bristles had a huge variety. They ranged from really long whisker-like bristles that were actually bristle-like to really short, fluffy, downy feathers. Hmm. 
that look nothing like a bristle and probably shouldn't even be called a rictal bristle. It should be called like a rictal down fluff. <laughs> and then they had everything in between. Some of them were just like a little bit fluffy and, you know, some of them looked more like a regular feather. Out of those, there were nine out of the 12 that have receptors to detect forces on the bristles. So three of them theoretically wouldn't even feel if something was pressing on the bristle, which is also very strange. But what the researchers said is, quote, overall species with short, thin branching bristles that lacked mechanoreceptors tended to forage pre-dusk in open habitats, end quote. So it's possible that they weren't really using their bristles all that much if they were hunting in the daytime in, out in the open. And they said, quote, we suggest that rictal bristles are likely to be tactile in many species and may aid in navigation, foraging, and collision avoidance, end quote. Hmm. So it is a lot like a cat in that it could be useful in collision avoidance because I think that's mostly what cats do, right? It's like they're sort of the width of their head and then they know if they can fit through spaces and if they're going to bump into something in the dark and stuff like that. But the navigation piece is really interesting because I found other suggestions that they might use these bristles to help detect wind speed. And this is a really weird offshoot, mm -hmm. but I've done some VR glider piloting. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're flying a glider plane, it doesn't have an engine. So you have to pay a lot of attention to the wind direction and you have to sort of steer into the wind in a lot of ways, and you're like looking for thermals and stuff. And the way you do that is they actually tie a little piece of thread to the middle of the windshield, a little ribbon, and then you can see which way it's blowing. And that seems very similar to what they're saying for these rictal bristles. It's like this little, you know, fibrous thing, and they can feel which way it's blowing. And then they can use that to know how to navigate, you know, if they have to flap more in one direction so they don't get blown off course and stuff like that. Because in the dark, that would be very risky. So yeah, I think the OED and Merriam-Webster probably need to update their definition. And I thought it was funny because this paper from 2022, 48 years after the paper saying we need more research, ended with, quote, however, identifying rictal bristle function is challenging and demands further investigation in many species. Maybe in another 50 years. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll figure it out. So anyway, all that is to say, it's entirely possible that dinosaurs also had bristles on their faces especially for dinosaurs navigating in the dark. We do know some that lived in the Arctic, and it was dark for many months at a time. Absolutely, yes. You've also got Arictodromius in its burrows, and then anything hunting at night, it'd be useful for navigating potentially at night. Some birds also have bristles around their eyes, which are akin to our eyelashes. And I read that, and I was like, are there? I don't remember that. But if you Google bird with eyelashes, you see some really cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> For example, ostriches have yes. really famously beautiful eyelashes that I totally forgot about because you don't think of ostriches as having eyelashes because they don't have hair. Right. But they have bristles because you can just make a simplified feather that is just the one basically rachis type structure down the middle. And then all of a sudden you've basically got hair. I remember seeing cartoon ostriches with really emphasized eyelashes. Yeah. And if you Google ostrich eyelash, you don't actually really see ostriches. You get all these beauty products that are like, make your eyelashes as beautiful as an ostrich, <laughs> which I find hilarious. There's also this bird called a secretary bird, which is really cool. It looks cool just in general, but its eyelashes also look very glamorous. I was so close. I guessed eyebrows originally. 
Should have said eyelashes. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's also possible. Ostriches and emu kind of have eyebrow looking like bristles sort of out of the top of their head. How funny would it be if dinosaurs could raise their eyebrows? Yeah. Like how some people do. <laughs> yeah. One exactly. at a time. <laughs> I did do a literature search for rictal bristles and dinosaurs just to see what came up. And I found in 2020, Daniel Sepka published a paper on dinosaur feathers, which I think we might have covered. And he noted that dinosaurs may have had rictal bristles, but also noted that none have ever been found to date. They seem like they'd be hard to fossilize. Yeah, exactly. They're very fine. They're really small. They tend to be around the head. Mm -hmm. So even a lot of times when we find the feathers, it's because they sort of stick off to the side and we can sort of see an outline of them. But things that are obscured by the face, you mm -hmm. know, like the actual bone is harder to see. So yeah, it would be very difficult to see. But I wouldn't be surprised that in if in a few years, paleoart of dinosaurs has all sorts of these facial bristles all over them. That would be really cool. That would be. I would love to see which dinosaurs are the most likely to have those facial bristles. <laughs> T-Rex. It could be. You know, it's pretty bird. It's not that far distant of a relative to birds. Yeah. So it might have had some. It definitely seems like dinosaurs are just a little bit too naked. They need like some feathers. They need some bristles. They need a little grittiness to them rather than just <laughs> those smooth scales. Yeah. <laughs> there might have been some that were just the smooth scales. Yeah. So quite a variety. For sure, yeah, like aquatic things or something, but those ones that are on the land, especially like ostriches, mm -hmm. they have the eyelashes presumably to keep the sand out of their eyes. Mm. So these things like velociraptor that are out in the desert and in the sand. Yeah. Why not give them some eyelashes? Good point. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week. We are chatting with Julius and Evan about their soon to be published book Dinosaur World which profiles over 1,200 dinosaurs. I think they managed to cover all the dinosaurs that we know of so far. Nice. Thanks again, and until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.